We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the dignity of humanity. Lyndon Johnson was talking way back then, so he meant humanity. Of course he did. It has to do with, you know, do we have choices Can we choose such simple things as what we eat? Do we not have a right, a real right to know what the heck we are eating? Well, some people don't think we should know. Food and democracy. One doesn't usually link those two words, but as you'll see from today's discussion, the two are quite closely linked. Democracy is about citizens having a choice and showing some power over our own lives. But there's a bill moving very quickly down in Washington in Congress right now, HB 1599, House Bill 1599, which aims to assault democracy and our right to know what we are eating in our foods. It's been called the mother of all Monsanto Protection Acts. And it's a classic power struggle between plutocracy on one side and those demanding democracy on the other. Our guest on this first half of Keeping Democracy Alive is Catherine Paul, National Director of Organic Consumers Association. Tell us about the intent of this bill, please. I'm happy to do that. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, H.R. 1599 has been called, or, or they call it, the writers of the bill call it the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act, and it's anything... <laughs> But that this bill was clearly intended to do one thing, and that is to prevent food manufacturers from ever having to tell consumers in the U.S. if the food that they are selling you is either genetically engineered or contains genetically modified ingredients. That's the intent of the bill. That's the original intent of the bill. Um, however, it's been it's gone through several versions, and it's now much worse than just that. Well, <laughs> how did it get started? My understanding is, and I want to find out how it's gotten worse. I believe a law in Vermont requiring the labeling is that what uh, triggered it all? Well, uh, that certainly is why it's being rushed through Congress now uh. because the Vermont law would have to be enacted July 1st, 2016, which means beginning about October of this year, those food manufacturers would have to start the process of changing their labels. And that's why there's such a push right now to pass this law 
asking Congress to preempt Vermont's law. But it actually started sooner than that when when citizen ballot initiatives uh-huh. in California and Washington State and Oregon showed that there was great consumer demand for labeling and uh, forced the food manufacturers and the biotech companies to spend millions and millions of dollars um, trying to defeat these laws. Well, they have the millions of dollars. It's a great deal of profit at stake, no question about it. Most people probably do know what GMOs are, genetically modified organisms. Perhaps briefly you can tell us what they're used for and how they may affect neighboring crops, neighboring organic crops in particular. And and Monsanto's role in there as well. Sure. Um, Genetically modified foods, you, you know, the industry loves to misrepresent this and tell us, well, you know, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It's not true. Um, it's very different from hybridization. Um, it, it occurs in a lab, and it's manipulation of DNA and genetic material. And we don't really know what the long-term consequences of that is, either for the foods and our health or the environment um, and the potential for contaminating the, the crops that are grown by by farmers who don't want to grow GMO crops, whether they're conventional or um, organic. Um, We've had instances of those crops being contaminated widely by GMO crops. Because you can't contain seeds once they're out there. Yeah, the wind. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can't. And, And that brings me to one of the ways in which this law is now much worse that they're trying to put. Okay, yeah. It would... It would overturn laws that had been passed in counties in California and Oregon that um, some of these counties have passed laws saying that that created GMO-free zones, essentially saying you can't plant GMO crops here because they, they the, the risk of contamination to our non-GMO and organic farmers is too great. This law would overturn that. It would make it impossible at the state or local level to pass any law that would create a GMO-free zone. That is truly amazing. I mean, you talk about assaults on democracy. Just to and and to have plutocratic rule, you know, ruled by the incredibly powerful few. And Monsanto, are they the they're like the bad guy in all this, right? I mean, what, what's your sense? You've been listening. Uh, you've been around the biotech industry for a long time, uh, Catherine Paul. Uh, are a lot of the talking points coming from the industry that you hear coming out of members of Congress? You know, you hear this. Is it like they've cut and pasted it coming out of members of Congress now? That's exactly right. It's It's pretty much the same line all the time. They love to say that, there's, you know, scientific consensus that GMO foods are safe. And that's absolutely untrue. We have hundreds of scientists all over the world saying that they've published a paper saying there is no cons- no consensus in the scientific community that these are safe. So that's a flat-out lie. They love to put this out there saying, oh, it's going to cost manufacturers a lot of money and they're right. going to have to pass that down to consumers. Study after study has shown that that's ridiculous. These companies change their labels all the time. There's no cost involved to do this. Certainly, 
for the millions that they've spent to defeat these laws, they could change yeah. could have changed their labels many times. Mm. Um, it's a ridiculous argument. They just want to keep that information away from consumers. Now they they argue, I believe, I may be wrong, that the GMOs can help uh, deal with uh, world starvation. They can help uh, make food more available. What what is the what is the selling point of GMOs? And I, I also, in Europe, I believe, they've taken pretty stringent uh, uh, steps to prevent GMOs and control it, yes? They have, but we're trying to undermine that um, through the, the trade deal. Uh, of the course. And, oh, um, God. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. Yep. All, all of those trade deals are designed to break down those barriers, Um they call them barriers to trade, mm-hmm. laws that other countries have enacted. And keep in mind, again, we say this all the time, 64 countries in the world require these labels on food. It's only here in the U.S. that they've been able to buy our political system to keep the labels off of the food. It's really quite amazing. As for the argument yeah. of feeding the world, it's, it's an absolutely ridiculous argument, GMO corn and GMO soy are not feeding the hungry. We haven't, we've had these, these GMO soy and GMO um, cotton and GMO corn crops for decades. We still have world hunger. We're not feeding no. the world with these crops. We're feeding animals in factory farms and we're making tons of ethanol fuel, but we're not feeding the world. So why is Monsanto so, you know, out front? And I presume they are, are they the only makers of GMOs? They they're, seem to be the big uh, bully on the block here. Well, they've, they've sort of become the face, you know, the target. Um, certainly Dow, with its Agent Orange oh, crops, yes. mm-hmm. as we call them, is a big player in this industry, DuPont. Um, and then, of course, they're all in bed with the big food manufacturers who have figured out that this is, you know, these are cheap ingredients, um, and, and that's why you have them all working together to prevent this. We are talking on Keeping Democracy Alive about uh, GMOs and some current moves in Congress to freeze out the people and to uh, put in the control of uh, the big ag companies. and. You know, if Big Ag really believes that GMOs are totally safe, then playing the devil's advocate here, wouldn't labeling whether or not GMOs are in a particular food give the message to the consumer, oh, be wary, GMOs are not safe? They must, if they think they're they're totally safe, why would they want to label it? Because people could be, frankly, afraid of something that they would argue they shouldn't be afraid of. Well, um, I would argue that I can pick up any number of um, packaged foods in the grocery store and read a long list of ingredients that are scary to me, <laughs> words I can't even pronounce, but yeah. we require those to be on there. We require, or or, or at least allow, um, salmon, for instance, to be, you can say it's in the grocery store, you pick up a package, it's either farmed or wild. Right. Um, are are we to? That's just so you can distinguish. We ought to. But when when GMO salmon is approved, which the FDA will likely approve it, 
you'll have no way to know if you're buying GMO salmon. You can still only distinguish between farmed and wild. We label all sorts of things. It's information. And the fact is that, that there is such a correlation between pesticide residue in your food and GMOs that that alone is information that people should be allowed to have. Tell us more um, about that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, GMOs, over 84%, for instance, are grown with massive amounts of glyphosate, which the World Health Organization in March de- came out and said is a probable human carcinogen. Mm. You can't ingest GMO corn or GMO corn-derived products or GMO soy, which is in everything, without also ingesting glyphosate. Mm. And now the World Health Organization tells us that this is a probable carcinogen, um, and so the only way for me to know if I'm ingesting a, a product that contains corn, if it's also been grown with glyphosate, is if it's labeled GMO. And I'll tell you, I, whenever I buy milk, one company started it up, thankfully other companies have started it, that they label it carefully. They say, our farmers, uh, you know, have pledged not to use any GMO products and that's what I buy, you know, and I, I wonder if this, if House Bill 1599 passes, if, uh, I don't know, if somehow that would be made illegal, too. Tell us what, what's going on with that now in Congress. It's before the Agriculture Committee, and wh- where are we in the process of, of this law, which, again, would, if I have it right, would make it so that there can be no labeling of GMOs, period. Um, they've adjusted the law now um, to... A- in one of its versions, up until last week, they would have um, completely prevented any food manufacturer from ever saying their product was non-GMO unless it was certified non-GMO by a government-run program that they have yet to create. Mm. They had to adjust that. They've, they're now going to allow the non-GMO project um, so they've made some adjustment in that because it was so over-the-top outrageous. But the bill right now, um, we we understood, and in fact I had a conversation with the staff of Shelley Pingree's, Congresswoman Pingree's uh-huh. office the other day, and they're still surprised by this. It was originally supposed to be voted on in the um, Agriculture Committee, which it was this week, and then in the Energy and Commerce Committee. Now they're saying they're going to skip the Energy and Commerce Committee vote and take it straight to the House for a floor vote, possibly on Thursday. Wow. So that's coming up really quickly. Another fast-track piece of legislation that they don't want us to know about. Now, how how profitable is it? I mean, I can't imagine, I don't know if you have any figures as to how much they've been paying their lobbyists, Monsanto and the other guys. Why why is it so important to them that they have these GMOs? Does it is it that much of a profit driver? I guess it must be. It it is. It's clearly been a huge profit driver for Monsanto. You know, the reason they love to say that they've created this, you know, these crops to feed the world, and they love to claim that they're sustainable, which is ridiculous. Um, But the the fact of the matter is that they created these crops for one purpose, and that is to be able to sell massive amounts of chemicals. 
Monsanto was uh, in the chemical business long before it was in the agriculture business. Yeah. Same with Dow, which was making, you know, the Agent Orange that we used in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. These, these companies originated as poison companies, manufacturers of poison. Mm-hmm. And when, when, they, when they ran out of markets for that, they got into the agriculture business and figured out that if they got farmers to commit to growing their genetically modified corn or soy or alfalfa or whatever, those farmers then would have to use these massive amounts of chemicals. Right. And that's where the profit is. Right, they have to use it. They are. It's like dealing heroin. They're addicted to it. Their crops need it. They depend on it. It's and it's, but it's, it's not evil. even working anymore because huh. just as scientists predicted, these crops are evolving <laughs> to be resistant, and so then we have to up the ante. Right, we have to make more powerful chemicals because the original ones don't work anymore. And even, I understand, the production of the chemicals used to make GMOs is uh, concerning to the environment. Is that correct? I don't think there's anything about this technology <laughs> and this, this type of agriculture that shouldn't be of concern. Whether you're concerned about your own health, whether you're concerned about the environment, I mean, we're totally destroying the, the soil quality. So, you know, mm-hmm. lousy soil grows nutrient-poor food. It isn't even nutritious anymore. Right. Um, we're, we're contaminating waterways. We had, you know, the city of Toledo having to shut down the city's water a year or so ago um, because it was so contaminated from runoff from agriculture industry. Um, wow. There isn't anything that shouldn't be of concern. And... and and, you know, even if you're not a health nut, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not an environmentalist, this law should concern everyone. Historically, states have had this right. And isn't it interesting that we now have 83 Republican co-sponsors for this bill? Wow. Republicans who claim to be so pro-states' rights. Right. Turns out they're only pro-states' rights when it suits them. Mm. Um, we're we're looking at taking away rights that states have had for two hundred years. Wow, that is so interesting. the The hypocrisy there is amazing. Who are some of the the bad guys in the House of Representatives, and how does it look in the Senate? Uh, well, you know, it was uh, Representative Mike Pompeo from Kansas who introduced this, and uh, and his uh, buddy there, the um, ranking member of the Agriculture Committee, uh, Connolly, and I'm so sorry I've forgotten his first name, um, has signed on. I mean, there's a long list. There's right. three of them. And and you can look and see that many of these people are getting campaign contributions. <laughs> what a surprise! Big Ed. <laughs> so, um, it's... Again, as you said, they are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying on this. Um, are there, they are very determined to pass it. Are there good folks that are reliable, that are standing up to all that pressure, that are fighting against it? 
Um, well, yeah, a prime example, again, is uh, from my state, uh, sure. Representative Shelley Tingri, who's done an amazing job of um, of standing up and speaking out against this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it... it, it, it does it? It looks as though it will pass the House next week. I, I don't think anybody believes anymore that it won't. So we're waiting for a Senate companion bill. It hasn't been introduced yet. Um, there's been talk Oof. about it, but the bigger fear is that they will slip this in as a rider at the last minute. Um, you know, when it comes time to government shutdown over budget, mm-hmm. riders and amendments get attached and thrown in here and there. Oh, yeah. um, our biggest fear is that they're going to try to slip it in somewhere. Hmm. Hmm. I can just imagine that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine the president or, I don't know, maybe some of the candidates. They, w- you know, we're here, uh, this show is coming uh, from New Hampshire, where we have a lot of say over the presidential candidates. We can be asking them about it. And again, Playing devil's advocate, in, in the 1950s, there was this big fear of fluoridation. There's some fear now about GMOs. It, it, we did, the, the fear of fluoridation, I think, was shown to be uh, not really accurate. It does help uh, teeth quite a bit. Uh, there are fears in, in large doses of fluoridation on uh, neural development, I believe. But do they claim that it is scientifically proven that genetic, genetically modified organisms are safe? Do they claim that? Oh, yes, they do claim that. Um, and, and again, there are plenty of scientists around the world who um, will say that that's absolutely not true, and there have been plenty of studies that have raised a lot of questions, but the industry always, of course, attacks those scientists and attacks their right. studies. They have a tremendous public relations um, movement out there have have managed to do a great job of getting their message out through the corporate media. You know, I, I always recommend this book. It's only been out a couple of months, but if anybody wants to understand the history of how these were allowed into our food system without adequate safety testing and the extent to which Monsanto and other companies um, really stacked the deck in their favor very early on. I I recommend, I highly recommend people read a book called Altered Genes, Twisted Truth by Stephen Drucker. It traces the entire history with, you know, in-depth documentation. Um, There's nothing speculative about this book. Mm -hmm. And it outlines exactly what happened and why why these got into the food system without proper safety testing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of and course. Why the industry is so desperate to protect it. Well, interesting. It, it you know now that you mention it, it, seems to me it's part of a whole big uh, movement by some of the uh, crazier right wingers. Although the whole Republican Party seems to be filled with them these days to do away with all government relations, so that there. I mean, 
even food inspection, which came about, you know, as a result of uh, that uh, that book, uh, The Jungle. You know, just do away with that. Have no food inspection and just leave it up to the big manufacturers. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Catherine Paul, National Director of Organic Consumers Association. We're talking about House Bill 1599 uh, requiring that there be that people be kept in the dark about GMOs. Now, I was encouraged. Pope Francis recently said something about GMOs, didn't he? What did he say? Oh, uh, he yes, he did, and and he talked about the fact he 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 was very careful not to declare them either safe or not safe. But he said the whole this whole industrial system of agriculture really isn't working. It's not working for farmers all over the world. It's not working for the health of our soil and our planet and the health of our population. Um, he was he was very critical of it um, because it it is um, it's a form of agriculture that's that's destructive on almost any level you can imagine. Um, when it comes to human health, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to local economies, when it comes to farmers themselves, and certainly, as we've seen in this country, when it comes to democracy. Really, really. Democracy is just barely hanging by a thread, and it's under assault all the time. What can concerned people do? We're not powerless here. What are some actions that listeners can take? Well, you know, first and foremost, um, Look, look for products that, and the only way we know 100% well, now that a product isn't GMO is to buy certified organic. Right, but well, what about this bill? What can people do to stop this bill, House Bill 1599? Uh, continue to call, and phone calls are much more effective than emails. Continue to yeah. call members of Congress, post on their that, that sort of public conversation on their Facebook pages makes a difference. We, we have to continue to let as many members of Congress know that, look, we, we don't want this. This isn't right. It's not, it's not right from a state's rights perspective. It's not right from a consumer rights perspective. This is siding with big corporations over public interest. And and lawmakers need to hear that from as many people as right. possible. And we're going to continue this week to hammer on uh, members of the House, whether or not we think it may pass. The numbers matter. You know, the, the more support it has, the worse it's going to go in the Senate. Right. And then we will be working diligently um, when it comes time to fight this bill in the Senate, assuming they don't sneak it through some other way. And if people want to get in touch with you as it goes along, because it is so true that if, if the members of Congress in the House and Senate don't hear from people, they think people don't care. But if they do hear from people, it absolutely makes a difference. It doesn't always win the day, but it definitely makes a difference. How can people keep on top of the uh, websites you can point them to, how they can keep in touch with the Organic Consumers Association? What are your suggestions? Well, we um, we feature um, we've been featuring this heavily because um, our history over the past four years or so has been to be working on these 
state ballot initiatives, and we were very involved in passing the law in Vermont. At this point, it makes no sense to try to pass another state law if we're going to let them pass this federal law um, that would preempt them. So we, while it's not our only focus, it's, it's, uh, is really at the, our top priority right now. So we have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter. It goes out every Thursday. You can go to our website and sign up for that. Um, and what's your website? We, it's organicconsumers.org. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We can perhaps stop this and once again fight to keep our democracy. Catherine Paul, National Director, Organic Consumers Association, thank you so much for uh, shedding some light into this dark matter. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll be back in uh, just a couple of minutes. Here's Neil Young to talk about Monsanto. new album, The Monsanto Years. Yeah, he calls him Monsanto. He's from Canada. Well, we're going to switch gears a bit to talk about the new deal with Iran. When it comes to the deal worked out and preventing Iran from developing nuclear weapons, it seems that Republicans in Congress have all become Marxists. What? Marxist? I'm not talking about uh, Karl Marx. I'm talking, of course, about Groucho Marx. They are Groucho Marxists. Uh, and I will play a little something here in his role as Quincy Wagstaff in the movie Horse Feathers. The members of, uh, Republican members of Congress are doing just this. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I am against it. And even when you've changed it all, condensed it, I'm against it. Yes, they're against it. Doesn't matter what it is, if Obama's for it, if it may possibly be a feather in his cap, doesn't matter what it is, even if it benefits the world tremendously. 
they're against it. The fact is, according to the deal, Iran agrees that under no circumstances will it ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons, but it retains the right to peaceful nuclear energy under the nuclear non proliferation treaty. Well, this is big news, this treaty with Iran. Our guest on this segment is uh, Mitchell Plitnik, Program Director at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Mitchell, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Sure, thanks for having me. Well, Mitchell, is uh, his writing has appeared in the Jordan Times, Middle East Report, San Francisco Chronicle, and other outlets. He was columnist for Tikkun Magazine, Zeke Magazine, and Souciant. I don't know those last two. He has spoken all over the country on Middle East politics and has regularly offered commentary on a wide range of radio and television outlets, including PBS NewsHour, The O'Reilly Factor, that must have been fun, and CNBC Asia. What are the Republicans in Congress saying about this deal? And do you think they really believe what they're saying? Well, I mean, in a sense, I think they believe what they're saying because they're criticizing the fact that it basically leaves Iran with a nuclear infrastructure. But we knew that was going to happen. Um, so I, I think they're, they're essentially saying that they really don't want any deal with Iran. And I think you're right about the reason. The reason is because, not because it's, it's, it's in any way a risk for American uh, security, but because they don't want Obama to have a very, very significant foreign policy victory. Yes, for sure. And... What about the concern? I mean, nobody wants Iran to have nuclear weapons. What about the concern that they, the opponents say, you can't trust Iran. They're still designated as a state supporter of worldwide terrorism. What about that concern? Well, um, that's why this deal is a good deal. Uh, it has nothing to do with trust. There's no trust here. Um, there is an unprecedented level of monitoring that Iran has agreed to um, that's going to last for the next, in some cases, some parts of it for 10 years, for 15 years, for 25 years. Also, on top of uh, being, you know, having requirements under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Iran has also agreed to the additional protocol, which will mean higher level of monitoring forever. Um, so, you know, it, is it perfect? Is it um, ideal? Of, probably not from the perspective of not wanting Iran to ever have uh, any path to a nuclear weapon, but uh, this is this is what diplomacy is. Iran has to have a reason to agree, and their reason to agree is that the rest of the world agrees that they're entitled to a uh, an energy-producing, peaceful nuclear program. So uh, there, there's no real reason for concern on the basis of trust, because there's no trust being, being given here. No one's saying trust Iran, no one's saying believe them. What we're saying is the IA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is going to be looking at everything Iran does um, at, a, at a level that they have never approached with any other country. I don't see how you're going to do better than that. Well, uh, skeptics are saying, oh, again, you can't trust Iran. They're going to be able to hide this stuff. And I will say before you get to that, Probably about 10 years ago, I had someone on who had just returned from visiting Iran, and she was saying how much they very much wanted a new energy source, a nuclear energy source. Now, I personally don't like nuclear energy, but it's a far cry from a nuclear bomb. It's, and 
my, back to the question, will they be able to hide it? You know, it, will they be able to have, okay, nuclear energy generating electricity by splitting atoms and be able to tuck away any uh, uh, ability to actually start making the uh, processes of making nuclear weapons? Well, the reality is in order for them to do that, it would be very, very difficult. Um, I can't say impossible. Nothing's impossible. I mean, there's always, you can always find a way to do almost anything you want. But um, the IEA will be able to inspect all of Iran's uh, nuclear sites um, all the time. That's going to be under constant monitoring. And if they suspect that there's anything clandestine going on at an, any other site, including military sites, uh, they will be able to go uh, and and uh, inspect those sites as well. Uh, Netanyahu, uh, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, came on NBC and said, "Well, they'll have 24 days before before uh, there's 20 there's a 24 day period in which uh, if they want to inspect a military site, uh, that has to go through a process, and Iran, if Iran doesn't immediately want to agree." then there's a, a commission that has to decide whether or not it's legitimate, and it would give them 24 days uh, to hide whatever they were doing. But the fact of the matter is you cannot hide uh, enriching uranium past uh, the acceptable point in the space of a month. It leaves traces that are indelible and that will last for months on end. The radioactive traces are things that the IADA can detect. So if there's any suspicion that uh, Iran is breaking its agreement, uh, they're going to have the ability to detect that and to bring down the consequences, which would probably mean at least a snapback of U.S. sanctions, which are very significant. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, is, is it, again, is it impossible? No, but Iran would have to be very irrational uh, to, to violate this agreement at this point uh, anywhere within the next 15 years. And both American and Israeli intelligence agree they are not irrational actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they're they much, much, much bigger than Iraq, for example, and very sophisticated people. And, uh, you know, it's it's... It, it's it's different probably from what most Americans uh, picture about Iran. And they certainly are a player in the area. And as you mentioned, Netanyahu is completely apoplectic about the deal. Is it a threat to Israel? And how powerful is Netanyahu in the U.S. Congress, do you think? Will this be a test of his strength over the U.S. Congress? Well... I think that the first question is, is this a real, is this a real threat to Israel? Look, you know, the fact of the matter is, whatever risk is being taken here, uh, we're not taking it here in the United States. It is, it is Israel that would be at risk. So there, I, I, you know, most Israelis, not just the right wing, not just the Likud party, not just Netanyahu, most, the overwhelming majority of Israelis are not in favor of this deal. And for understandable reasons, the risk is really theirs much more, uh, than ours. And they're not getting anything positive out of it, uh, as, as we are. So, uh, or at least that's the perception in Israel, and, and I think it's an understandable one. Having said that, um, this, I believe, and I think the Obama administration, I know, believes, actually, that this is going to enhance Israel's security yes. uh, by cutting off the path to an, an Iranian bomb. So um, that's, that is, you know, I think where, where, we, where we start from, 
Um, I, as we said, as I said before, I think the Republicans don't have to be pushed by Netanyahu. They're more yeah. than motivated enough just to stop Obama. On the Democratic side, there are clearly a few a few members of the Senate. Uh, Robert Menendez uh, would be the, the best example. There might be a few others who are pretty much in line with the Republicans to begin with. Uh, and Netanyahu will certainly do everything he can. <clears throat> to push Congress in the direction he wants. I personally do not think he's going to be successful, but there's going to be a battle. And the battle's going to be not among the Republicans. It's not going to be Republicans versus Democrats. It's going to be among Democrats. Um, and how many of them can resist the pressure from uh, some powerful lobbying groups here, not just uh, uh, APAC and, and you know, but also the neocon PACs, Foundation for Defense of Democracy, the American Enterprise Institute, and other groups that are going to be uh, doing everything they can to kill this deal. Interesting. So there will be a battle. Uh, I don't think that in the end they're going to get enough Democrats to go against the president on something this big. Uh, and I think the deal will eventually survive. I think there will probably be a vote against it, but when Obama vetoes, they will not be able to override it. So... Um, and again, I think Netanyahu has done Israel a great disservice because one point Netanyahu and others in Israel are making is that Israel's concerns were not adequately addressed. And I think there's some truth to that. But the reason they were not adequately addressed is because Netanyahu basically made it an all-or-nothing proposition. Yeah. That, you know, I don't want to see any deal. Um, the, the sorts of things that she was demanding basically were things that, that were deal killers. Um, there was no way Iran was ever going to agree to them. And <clears throat> as a result, Israel moved itself out of the conversation. So their concerns, what, however legitimate um, they might be, were not taken into account. They were cut off from uh, early on. Uh, they started leaking information to the press to, to paint the negotiations in a bad light. And that meant that they were getting less communication after that from the United States because uh-huh. John Kerry and, and his team didn't want everything going into the media. So I think Israel, I think Netanyahu really did Israel a great disservice here. Um, I understand the concerns of many Israelis. I understand that they weren't addressed, uh, maybe to their satisfaction, but that was because of the actions of their prime minister, not because the United States doesn't care about them. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest on this segment is uh, Mitchell Plitnick, Program Director at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And I would think, you know, if this deal works, which I think it will, that Israel really should breathe a sigh of relief. I mean, it's not like they don't have other problems, <laughs> but that would be one less from Iran. If Iran does not have nuclear weapons, I mean, gee, it might take the fun out of Israel bombing Iran, but aside from that, uh, that'll be one less threat to worry about. Now, they keep stirring up other threats as well, Israel does, but uh, yeah. Now, the, the whole process here, Jim Webb, who just recently started running for president, said, quote, rather than an executive agreement, this should have been debated, debated openly in front of the Congress, unquote. What's your reaction to that? Well, that's just not the way these things are worked out. Um, the, the president's job is to conduct foreign policy. It is not Congress's job to conduct foreign policy. It is Congress's job to have some oversight of what the president does. And I think the process that's in place does that. Uh, if this was really a bad deal, if this was really something that 
left a lot of holes for Iran to pursue a nuclear weapon, uh, Democrats in Congress would vote, would vote against it. Uh, I think that's, that's just being responsible members of Congress, and I don't think that anybody uh, in their right mind would allow any president to, to cut a deal like this that actually jeopardized American security. So um, the bill, the agreement does go to Congress. They do get, they get 60 days to look it over in all the detail, get all their staff members, you know, combing through it, finding, you know, every hole or uh, any flaws that might be there. Uh, and then they get to decide, yay or nay, on the, on the agreement. Um, I think that's, that's the way foreign policy is supposed to work. That's the president's job is to work out these deals and then bring it before Congress to vote on them. That's so uh, there's nothing special uh, in that sense about the process uh, that, that uh, the Obama administration undertook here. Uh, they have kept Congress informed all along. There have been hearing after hearing, both public and uh, private, with congressional leadership. Uh, so nothing's been done here in secret. And if there were really things that, that members of Congress could not vote for, could not uh, stand with on a security basis, um, they would have already known about them. And I guarantee you, they would have told uh, every reporter they could find. That's true. But and, you know, the, the State Department is part of the executive branch of government. It is not mm-hmm. part of the legislative branch of government. It's worked like that for, oh, a couple hundred years or so. All kinds of treaties have been negotiated forever. And, you know, for, for some who obviously don't like Obama uh, to, to say that this was done wrong, that, that it shouldn't have been uh, done through the uh, executive branch. They're just intentionally ignoring history, which is, hey, they have every right to do, and they do it pretty often. Yeah. And and you talk about history. A lot of Republicans have this pedestal, a very high pedestal on which they put St. Ronald Reagan. What about his relations with Iran's leaders and thinking of deals like this? Well, we, we of course, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are old enough to remember the Iran-Contra scandal and, and how we dealt with that, uh, not to mention the fact that um, at least it was said at the time when Reagan uh, had won the election, but before he took office, that there were certain communications with Iran that made it clear that uh, he wanted the hostages released right when he was becoming president right. and that the Iranians agreed with that. Uh, whether or not, I mean, as far as I know, that has never been proven, but certainly um, there were uh, there was a lot of talk about that, and we know the Reagan administration dealt with Iran uh, clandestinely. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, and, and we, we have that history. We know how the Republicans' uh, cynical minds in the, at that time at least worked, and I think the same cynicism is, is uh, showing itself right now issue here is politics, and it is a, a particular agenda. Back in the 80s, it was advancing the anti-Marxist uh, programs in Central America. Right. Uh, it was opposing the Sandinistas and, and you know, uh, supporting the Contras in Nicaragua. Now it's simply about making sure that Barack Obama does not have uh, this kind of foreign policy victory. But they're going to fail, because they don't have a case. Uh, when you look at the arguments against this deal... There's no case. Um, many of what they're, many of the talking points that they put out are simply false. 
some of them are true, but there's no alternative to them. And the bottom line is, um, nobody has any better ideas. Right. And if there was no deal, Iran would, uh, if we believe that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon, if there was no deal, Iran could have one by, by default. So uh, there's no options being presented, and it's simply about getting a Democratic president uh, uh, to look bad. Yes. And, and, they're, and in so doing, they're jeopardizing the ability of future presidents to conduct negotiations. And Iran is such a potentially big player in the Middle East. On one side, you have the Saudis, who, you know, theoretically are are good buddies there, and they're not very nice to their people, that's for sure. The idea of uh, uh, beheading is not uh, unknown, to put it mildly, in, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's bitter enemies, I believe, are the Persians, the Iranians. Uh, and I wonder how uh, this deal, you know, if if it goes through, if it happens, how this deal might influence the future of the Middle East, and what, if anything, we've heard from the Saudis about this. They 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 don't like the Iranians. Well, the Saudis don't like the Iranians, but the Saudis have come out very clearly in support of the deal. They oh, have right. their reservations, and they want to make sure that the United States is is still going to be uh, behind them. Um, and I think the Obama administration has made it very clear that they will be. But um, they have their they have concerns about it, but they've been very clear about supporting the deal. The Gulf uh, the the Gulf states have unanimously approved the deal. Um, they all like the fact that that Iran is blocked from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Sure. Um, so I think those you know I, having said that, there are real concerns. Um, but a lot of those concerns are overblown. It's the same uh, for Israel's concerns. Israel's, Israel, most of the, most Israelis may recognize that, yes, the, the Iranians don't, won't have a nuclear bomb, but they're afraid that uh, their support now that they have more money for Hezbollah will, will skyrocket. The Saudis have the same concerns in Yemen and Iraq. But the reality is that the sort of support that Iran gives to those groups is not very expensive. Uh, they don't tend to fund them. What they tend to do is train them, uh, help advise them, uh, possibly help them acquire arms through third parties and things of that nature. So it doesn't, more money doesn't really increase Iran's ability to help those groups because um, that's just not the way they help them. And plus, they need the money at home. That's what this is all about. Um, this is about quieting the uh, the Iranian people who are screaming for economic relief, sure. um, and that it's about giving it to them. And if they if they fail to do that, I think you're going to see um, lots of unrest in Iran. And I don't think that's the regime's intention. I think they want to maintain their own stability, and um, and it, the way for them to do that is to improve their economy. So that's where those funds are going to go. And I think that's going to mean it's a generally positive outcome. It isn't going to change the issues the Saudis have in Yemen with Iran, Um, the issues the Bahrainis have, the issues the Israelis have. Those things are going to continue. I would contend, however, that now a door is open to try and resolve some of the issues in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Lebanon um, um, in a diplomatic way now that, that there's communication that's possible with Iran and because Iran has incentive to, um, to scale back some of their rhetoric, to scale back some of their activities, because they're going to be doing business with Europe, and they're going to want to keep the Europeans happy. I think that is a huge point here that, that may 
really, I mean, okay, stopping them from getting nuclear weapons is a very, very big deal. But affecting the the power uh, arrangement that there is and bringing Iran in closer to the Western world, my goodness, that is a very good thing. I can't see how it cannot be a good thing for the people of Iran. And isn't it, could it not be argued now that the sanctions, which have gone on for a very long time, that the sanctions worked? The sanctions were part of a program. It was, you know, it was tariff and stick. I personally, I'm of the belief that when both carrots have stick, it can right. be effective. Nice to just be able to use carrots, but that's right. probably not the world we live in. I think it was effective to the point. It was effective because there were sanctions and there was an alternative for Iran. If there was just sanctions, which is what Republicans are advocating, right. you know, more sanctions could have gotten us a better deal. Well, no, because more sanctions don't change what the bottom line was for Iran. Without Iran being able to come back to their people, without the leadership being able to come back to their people, with something that says, yeah, we're, we're, we're making some compromises, but look what we're getting, then there's no diplomacy. Both sides have to get something in order for diplomacy to work. No question about it. And they got something here, and uh, this will enable uh, more <laughs> people will be able to buy more stuff and improve the economy there and spread the wealth and... Uh, and just be have less uh, incentive for belligerence. They they just will right. now, you know. And and speaking and, of, well, you're about to say something. Uh, well, I was just going to say that that um, there is less incentive for belligerence, and and to the extent that people are still worried about their human rights record and their other activities in the region, there are still sanctions in place that are related to those things, and those are not touched by this agreement. That's true. So, and um, they can be dealt with. Iran is now totally free. Right. They can be dealt with in other manners, but this was not the time or place for that. This is a right. narrow focus thing. Well, there is the little problem in the area called ISIS, the Islamic State. Uh, I wonder how this new deal might actually influence the fight against ISIS. I mean, Iran's government doesn't like ISIS, and we have not been able to not work. At all. So tell us how no, you I'm... think this, this deal will affect the fight against ISIS now. They can't be happy. ISIS well, can't be happy. Well, I would, I mean, I would preface it by saying the deal by itself, it, it, it's possible that the deal will simply close uh, the path to an Iranian nuclear weapon, and that's all we ever get. And if that's the case, that's right. fine. But I do think it has the very real potential to expand, and it's precisely because, um, it's precisely because of ISIS. It's because of the fact that the United States, as well as the, the Arab states, uh, Israel and Iran have a common enemy, uh, and a common enemy that's a much greater threat than than Al Qaeda was or the Taliban were. Uh, they are they are uh, certainly uh, have made more impressive gains than any of those groups. So I think it's very possible that having opened a uh, negotiating door, plus the fact that there is a common enemy, will will uh, will open more doors um, and will open up more possibilities. For the United States and um, and the Saudis and you know those one day even the Israelis to work with Iran against ISIS, um, I, I certainly I'm not going to say that's going to happen. Right. Um, I wouldn't make that bold a prediction, but it's certainly a possibility, and it's much more of a possibility now than it, it was before. And let's not forget, early on uh, uh, in the fight against uh, the Taliban, the, the Iranians worked uh, offered to work with the Bush administration. So it wouldn't be unprecedented. And they did some. Uh, they did work together for a while uh, to oppose the Taliban 10 years ago. So um, it wouldn't be unprecedented to see 
something like that happen. And I, I can't help but think that, uh, I mean, I, Iran has already been involved in the fight against ISIS. They they do it from their side, we do it from ours, and, you know, there's a lot of, it's very complex, but ISIS has got to be a little bit more worried, which I think is a good thing. I think so. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a very strong positive, another strong positive that comes out of this deal. Yeah. And this deal is not a guaranteed, you know, path to peace between, you know, in the area. It's been a hotbed area since know, a few hundred years. It's going to take active civil society groups in both countries, in all countries, uh, to put the U.S. and Iran on a trajectory toward justice. I believe you said something like that. And what what can people do now? We are, again, not powerless. We still have a little bit of a democracy left. What would you suggest people do to make sure this thing happens? Well, I mean, the first the first step is very clear. Call the member of Congress, uh, both the House and especially the Senate. Yes. Uh, and especially uh, Democrats. Um, call them and tell them that you want this deal to go through. Um, you know, and, and tell your friends to do the same thing. I think one of the problems that, that we face with, with things like this is I'm, I'm told this by, uh, by, by staffers on the Hill all the time, that they hear from the right. The right wing, they're calling uh, them, they're writing letters, they're sending up meetings. Um, do it. This is really important. This is, yes. uh, this, is, this is a very, very big deal, and it could turn into a much bigger deal. So I think that's the first step. I, I do think we're going to win this fight. Yes. Um, and so from there, it's going to be you know, about, about trying to understand Iran better uh, and, and encouraging further diplomacy with Iran. And so that's, that needs to be on everyone's foreign policy agenda. Uh, encourage further diplomacy, not trusting, not pretending right. Iran is a bunch of nice people, <laughs> right. but talking with them is a good thing. Um, and that needs to move forward to see where else we might be able to improve the situation and perhaps, you know, have the U.S., you and the United Nations play a positive role in trying to resolve conflicts in places like Yemen and Iraq and Syria uh, in a peaceful manner rather than what we are what we're doing right now. And I happen to think this may portend even more progress, way more progress than Nixon's opening to China, because they're still a very repressive regime. So this may have uh, more of an effect than that. If people want to contact you or go to Foundation for Middle East Peace, what's the website? It's um, fmep.org. See what we have to say on a variety of subjects in the Middle East. Thank you so much. Very informative and uh, kind of hopeful. Nice to have every now and then. Thanks so much, Mitchell, for being with us. Thank you very much. There may be peace on earth. It's a start. It's a little start. Call your member of Congress and your senator. It really makes a difference. That's a way to keep democracy alive. Turn on the news. The killing continues. And there before the grace of God. Go.
riding in the street. 